If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Just uh, to let you know, if you're wondering, we will be for the Sunday school hour beginning the tradition that is one of our kind of church traditions for the adult Sunday school of having a sermon discussion or better yet more a uh, passage discussion. So even now as you're hearing us think through this passage and the larger story that we're considering, think about questions that you might have or thoughts you might have because I find I'm always enriched by the discussion that happens during that time. So if you can join us, please do so for that time beginning at 11.15 here after the service. But before we go any further, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, we have already uh, sung to you and prayed to you, and we uh, take comfort and confidence in the knowledge that you hear us, that you love us. We think of the song we sang earlier where there is this confusion that sometimes we find ourselves where it feels like you are far from us and we have to hold on to your promises. And we thank you that even if things feel like you are distant, that you never are that you are always present with us. And so even now, as we come to your word, in some ways by coming to your word, we are especially coming into your presence. We pray that you would please turn our hearts and our minds to you, that we might hear your word, that we might hear your promises, 
and be renewed by them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our sermon series, as Brent already has alluded to, is entitled The Mission of God. And really what is our focal point, the thing that is underpinning all that we're doing in these weeks, is the conviction that Scripture, though it has so many different pieces, though it is so diverse, ultimately tells one coherent, unified story. And it is a story of the mission of God, his mission to redeem this world. And that's an important truth. That's why we, it's important, and the reason that we're wanting to spend so much time thinking about it is not just because it helps us to read the Bible well, although that is true, but it helps us to understand the world well, because if all of this holds together, and I believe it does, then that means there is meaning, there is coherence and clarity to the world around us. We're in a time where many don't believe that. Uh, we're in a time where, where many ultimately, if you push them, will say that all of this is just a bunch of atoms crashing together chaotically. There is no real meaning. We just have to make meaning for our lives, which is another way of saying we just have to pretend that we're significant even though we're not. But see, if Scripture is one overarching story of God redeeming the world, and that's telling us not just something about the Bible, but that's telling us something about the world, that there is something going on that's bigger than ourselves, that there is something that unites everything together, that everything ultimately has meaning because God is doing something significant. And that's what we see when we understand the whole story of Scripture. So two weeks ago, we began. And if you remember, if you were with us on that day, we we saw how God intended the world to be. We were given a picture of how things could be, of how things should be. There was this, this vision that we had of Eden where, where Adam and Eve, humanity, were whole. There was no selfishness, no, no hiddenness from each other. There was partnership and delight, and there was harmony with the world around them. They were at home, no threats, no mosquitoes to bite them. We were, they were enjoying the world around them. And at the very center, there was this perfect relationship where Adam and Eve could see God, could speak to God, could partner with God, knowing they were loved as his children. Uh, the phrase I use to describe how things were, how things should be, is God's people in God's place under God's rule. But last week was when it all went south. Last week, what we could describe chapters 3 through 11 of Genesis is basically how we broke everything. That's what, that's what that passage, those chapters are about. Because we... And Adam and Eve turned our back on this relationship, this beautiful relationship we had with God. For some reasons, we were, Adam and Eve were convinced to doubt God's goodness. Even though God had said, I want to give you everything except this one thing, this one thing you shouldn't eat because it will not be good for you, because you will die, eat everything else. Satan was able to convince Adam and Eve that they shouldn't trust God at his word, that God was holding something back. And so they ate the forbidden fruit and when they disobeyed God, they drove a wedge in their relationship with him. Now, when God comes looking for them, they're hiding. There's shame. There's fear. 
And God himself being holy cannot just overlook this disobedience as if it didn't happen. There is now a rupture in the fellowship that should have been at the very heart of this world. And when that rupture takes place, everything breaks. So now Adam and Eve are no longer in Eden, no longer in harmony. Death has entered the universe. And that means there's threats all around. And chapters 3 through 11, one of the most common things we see again and again, it's so common that we don't even notice it, as we have genealogy, as we, and so-and-so died, and so-and-so died, and so-and-so died. It's telling us death has come. The world is no longer a hospitable place for us. That broke. And, and we broke. Before knowing God and in fellowship with him, we were whole, we were complete, but now we're insecure and self-centered because he was the sun and we were the planets. Our whole meaning and purpose was centered around him. And so because of that, humanity and its relationships broke. And so in these chapters, you see a brother killing another. You see people taking revenge on each other. You see complete discord. And by the time you get to Babel, which we looked at last week, you are a long way from Eden. It's a fairly dark picture. Everything was lost. There's no longer God's people. We've lost our identity as God's people. We have lost our place in God's place, and we have lost our relationship with God and his rule. Now, if you're reading a typical story or you're watching a typical movie at this point, when one bad thing happens after another after another, what is it that you are waiting for? Well, you're waiting for a turning point, right? I mean, if it's, if it's an action movie, you're waiting for the, the good guys to finally notice that there's a fatal flaw to the bad guys that they can penetrate. Or if it's a sports movie, suddenly some guy comes off the bench and hits a home run and you realize this team can do something. You're looking for something to change. And there is a turning point, a really significant turning point. But it's not what we would expect, I don't think. We see in, in the passage that we're looking at today, the entire universe pivoting on something as simple and as seemingly insignificant as a promise. The promise first comes to us in chapter 12. We didn't have time to include chapter 12, but that's, that's when it begins. After the fall with Babel and this brokenness in chapter 12, God comes to a simple, wealthy Syrian landowner by the name of Abe, Abram. And he says, I want you to leave. I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave your family, your extended family. I want you to leave your home. And I want you to go where I'm going to take you. I'm not even going to tell you where it is. You just need to go. But here's what I promise you. I am going to be your God, and I will bless you. And through you, all of the world will be blessed. I will make you a great nation. I mean, to put it maybe in our framework, God says, I am going to be your God and ruling you in the right way. I am going to make you once again into my people, and I am going to give you my place, and it is going to be so good that the entire world will be changed through what I am about to do. So Abe does exactly what he should do in this moment. Hearing this amazing promise, he believes and he leaves. And he goes, leaving Syria, going to this new area of Canaan. 
completely alone, not having any lands to his name, not having any children yet. And, and by the time we get to the passage that we were just looking at, that Nathan read from Genesis 15, it's been about a decade since that first promise was made to Abraham in Genesis 12. And it's been a hard 10 years. Abram has faced drought where they've had to quick find food. They've gone to Egypt and that was a scary thing for them. They have faced warfare where the people around them are not terribly friendly and at times have been attacking and they've had to fear for their lives. And in this entire 10 years, there has not been one sign, one hint that God's promises are going to be fulfilled. No progress towards that goal. They still don't have any land. They still don't have any children. And so you might imagine that Abram is starting to really struggle. He's he's feeling afraid. And we can tell that he's feeling afraid because of the very thing that God says to him. I mean, what does God say right at the very beginning? Fear not, Abram. Why would he say that? It's because Abram is getting afraid. Fear not. Don't be afraid that you're doing this all in vain, I think is what's lying behind this. I am your shield, Your reward shall be very great. This will be worth it, Abram. Now, I don't want to go by this detail too quickly because think of this. This is the God of the universe, the one who holds everything, who's aware of every star, who's aware of every blade of grass, who's holding everything. There's things going on throughout the world, but God wants to make sure that this one person that he has spoken to is reassured. I'm going to be your shield. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to reward you. There's this personal aspect to the God of the universe that is remarkable. And that's that's how God is towards you and towards me. He says to us, I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. It's amazing when you consider it. But I will say Abram is still struggling even after he hears God reminding him, I'm your God. We see that in his response. He essentially says, God, I don't understand how you're going to reward me. You said you were going to make me into a great nation, but I have no children. You know, he says he has other family members and they're about to be his heir and he's not quite sure what to do with this. Now, it's especially understandable that he's struggling with this when you realize that at the time that this is happening, Abram is 85 years old. Some of you might have parents or grandparents who are around that age. Imagine if they came to you and said, we've decided we're going to try to get pregnant. (laughs) You can see why Abram is struggling to figure out how to make sense of this. I mean, there is this enormous gap between his experience and what he sees and, and the future that God is promising. And so there's a sense, I think, that Abram is saying, could you just help me to see that this is going to take place? Maybe you can give me the child, like, tomorrow. He wants the tension to be resolved, but God doesn't resolve the tension. Actually, he makes the tension even greater. First, he once again says, Abram, it's not going to be this other person. You will have a son, and that will be your descendant. And just as a quick footnote, that son doesn't come for another 15 years. But then he he makes this promise even more extraordinary, even bigger, by taking Abram out and saying, look in the sky, it's dark at night. If you've ever been in a place where there's no city lights nearby, you know how bright the stars can get and how many you can see. And he says, look at them and try to count them. You know you can't count them. 
that's how many descendants I'm going to give you. God doesn't help Abram by telling him how it's going to happen. He just brings Abram back to his word and says, here is my word, and you can trust it. And he does exactly the same thing in the very next paragraph. Because once again, now God speaks to Abram and says, I am your God, and I will give you this land. And Abram looks around, and he can't see how this could possibly happen. And so he says, oh Lord, how can I know that this will be true? That's really... That's really the question we find ourselves facing sometimes, isn't it? Whoever believes in me will have eternal life. I am with you. Lord, how can I know that this is true? We pray that, don't we? So we know why Abram is praying this, especially since he doesn't have any fortress, he doesn't have any land yet, he doesn't have a massive army, he doesn't have any allies. There is no clear way that he can somehow get this land. And once again, when God responds, he makes it even harder to believe, not easier. So what does he say? Let me first look at the promise that he says. Do you notice what he says? Uh, It says, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. And then verse verse 18, excuse me, to your offspring I give this land. Think about what he's saying to Abram. Abram, You're going to die before you see any of this. And not just you, but your children and your grandchildren, the next 400 years are not going to get any of this. In fact, they're going to be living in a faraway land, and I'm going to have to bring them. But 400 years from now, you will get all of this. That doesn't make it easier for Abram, I don't think, right now. But do you notice what he also does? There's this rather exotic scene where you've got these animals that are split in half and you've got this fire going through it. And there's a lot that we could talk about because there's a lot of symbolism. But at the heart of what's going on is God is formalizing this promise. He's making a covenant. It's, it's kind of the ancient equivalent of getting a notary and notarizing while you're getting signed because this is a really big deal. God is saying you won't be able to see any progress between now and when I get the land. It's going to go way beyond your life, but let me give you a reason to trust because you have my word and I am binding myself to it and I'm even giving you a sign to show you can believe that my promise can be trusted in. And that's where this passage leaves us. Here is where the turning point of our story. Everything after these promises in Genesis 12 and 15, and they get repeated in 17 and 21, everything after just follows from here. This is what begins the story of God's mission, the story of redemption, really. And as we take, ba- take a step back and consider, I- I'd like us to notice three truths, three aspects to what we see in this promise that sets everything in motion. The first is what we see is that God isn't giving up on us. 
I mean, once humanity made such a mess of things, it seems like it came really close. I mean, the flood is just basically the sign of almost completely giving up on us, but God was not going to give up on us, even though we deserved it. And here's what we see in Genesis 12, God is saying, you've lost everything, but I want to give you everything back. You lost being in my place, I'm bringing you Abraham to my place. You lost being my people, Abraham, I'm going to make you into my people. You've lost a relationship with me, Abraham, I am going to be your shield, I'm going to provide for you. He is giving back everything that was lost, and it's not just to Abraham, because do you remember, he says, through you all the world will be blessed. What we see here is God getting back for us everything that we've lost. Do we want sometimes to know what is going on in this world? It seems confusing. There's so many things, so much frustration. We wonder whether our country is going the right direction and all of that. What's going on? Well, let me tell you, underneath everything, something very simple but amazing is going on. God is bringing us back to Eden. That's what he is about. That's what he is declaring in these promises. I am going to bring you and my people back to Eden to restore what you lost the first thing we see here. The second thing I want us to see, and I'll take a little bit more time with this, is that when God sets out to redeem, it always begins with a promise. And that's what our story tells us right here, right? This is a story of now the beginning of redemption begins with promises made to Abraham. And this isn't the only place that we will see this. When God rescues all of Abraham's descendants from Egypt, as he will 400 years from now, the first thing he does is he gathers them around a mountain and he makes promises, he makes a covenant. Centuries later, when you have the great King David, which is the high point of Israel's Old Testament history, what do you have? God makes promises to David. And even as things start falling apart amongst the people of Israel, prophet after prophet, even after they warn and warn, they still again and again speak promises of God, saying, I will redeem you. And then when Jesus comes and fulfills these promises in the most remarkable ways, he still leaves us with promises. Whoever believes in me will have eternal life. I will not leave you or forsake you. In in me, you have forgiveness. These are promises. That's how God works. Whenever God sets out to redeem, it begins with promises. And it's not just what we see in this big picture story of the world. It's also what we have experienced in our own lives. If you are a Christian, it began with a promise. At some point, maybe as an adult or maybe as a really young child, you heard God's promise that if you believe in Jesus, no matter what you have done, you are forgiven. That's a promise, and that's what gives you life. When God sets out to redeem, it begins with a promise. Now, when we consider that, there's something remarkable and something incredibly comforting about this. God doesn't have to do this. He could just leave us with a general understanding that we are forgiven through Jesus, that he loves us, but he gives us something more. He locks himself in. He binds us with his word so that even when things don't feel the right way, we can cling to something he has said. 
Isn't that what he gives to Abram? Abram is, is filled with doubts and he says, you can trust me. I'm going to give you my word. I'm binding myself. God doesn't have to do it, but he does to strengthen our faith. We can know for certainty where our future is because God has made a promise and he always, always keeps his word. So that's a comforting thing that our God is a God who makes promises. But if we are also honest about this, we will realize it's not just a comforting thing, but it can also be a hard and confusing thing. Because when we speak about God making promises of redemption, we're also saying that God is telling us to wait. That's how promises work, right? Promise is something that is said when we don't yet have the full experience of it. And we see the agony that Abram was dealing. He was told to wait. As I said, even after he has this crisis moment and God says, I will give you a son, it's 15 more years before Isaac is born and it's 400 more years till he has the land. And all of this time, he's simply trying to cling to the memory that he has a God who has said this will happen. And that's hard, isn't it? I mean, isn't that what we feel? I mean, because... There's an agony in, in just holding on to promises because, if we are honest, life is hard. Sometimes it's really hard. We find anxiety over the many responsibilities that we are given. Many of us carry grief because of loss that we have experienced. Family and family relationships are, are harder and more complex. The dreams that we thought we could reach are suddenly now out of reach. And, and in this feeling at times of aloneness or confusion or failure, we, we look to our Christian faith hoping that it will make things better. And in some ways, of course, it does. And sometimes when we pray for things, God gives us exactly what we want. But, but oftentimes when we are in the face, in the midst of mess, and we are turning to God, he doesn't say, I'm going to make things better for you right now. He gives us his promises, and he tells us to wait. He will make you new. He will unite you with others. He will make you feel at home, but not necessarily right now. In fact, probably not right now. And sometimes the the longings that we have most deeply are ones like with Abram, we have to wait not just for months, but years or decades or even on the other side of death before we see God's promises being fulfilled. And that's not an easy thing for us. And as we face this reality, we, we, we ask a question quite naturally, why? Why does God do things this way? If you think about it, theoretically, God could have, right when he spoke to Abram, immediately sent Jesus. Or, I mean, I suppose he could have even done it way back, right after Adam and Eve fell. He could have done it right then. Why, why this period where there's this promise and then centuries upon centuries before Jesus comes to fulfill those promises? And then even after that, why is it now centuries upon centuries upon centuries as we're waiting for Jesus to return? Why is this promise and waiting a part of the way that God works? Now, we don't fully ever know the mind of God, but I do think Scripture has given us at least part of the answer. And I think part of the answer is because this is exactly what we need. 
Because more desperately than anything else, we need to be brought back into a right relationship with God, our Father. And at the heart of that relationship is faith. Think of how things were broken. When Adam and Eve turned from God, it was because they didn't trust God at his word. They thought that God was keeping something good from them. They weren't willing to wait on God, and everything fell apart as a result. And now, as God is remaking and redeeming everything, he is retraining us to once again learn what it means to be his people, to be his creatures. And a central part of that is realizing that God is God and we are not. And that we need not to lean on our own understanding, but to take God at his word. And to realize his promises are far more trustworthy than any intuition or any thought we have. As God is calling you to wait, as God is showing you your helplessness and you're just looking to him, he is teaching you once again how to be his and how to trust him. And that brings me to the third observation that I want to see in this passage. And that is, this passage shows us how we begin to participate in God's mission. I've said this story that we have in scripture is a story of God's mission to redeem the world, to bring us back to Eden. And as we read, of course, we're wanting to know what is our role? How do we become a part of it? And here it tells us how our role begins. And that role begins with faith. The way we participate in God's mission, first and foremost, above everything else, is by taking God at his word. And I say that because Abraham here is meant as the archetype, as the template as the example that we are supposed to follow. Everyone who is part of God's people after Abraham is considered by the Bible a child of Abraham. Ultimately, it doesn't matter whether you are a Jew or not. If you have trusted in the way that Abraham does, you are a child of Abraham. In some ways, he is the great forefather of God's people. And what is it about him that is this archetype, this template? It's not that he was known as a mighty warrior. It's not that he was known as a great preacher. He's not even known for his great love or integrity. The thing that he's known for again and again in the New Testament is that he believes. We see that right in the middle of our passage. After God shows Abram the stars and says this outlandish thing, that you will have that many descendants, it says, Abraham believes and it is credited to him as righteousness. And that's what you and I are called to do as we see what God is doing. Our first and foremost responsibility more than anything else is to hear God's promises and to take God at his word. To entrust our very life to the reality of these promises. Now let me say, when we look at Abraham and see what faith looks like, this is not just a passive, I just believe in my mind thing. It does involve our lives. Sometimes believing in God's word means risk. Think of it, when, when God first makes promises to Abraham, that means Abraham leaves everything and has to risk everything because of his belief in God's promises. And sometimes that's what it's going to mean for you or for me. 
There might come a time, maybe even right now, where you find yourself with a decision between two different jobs, and one of them is the more profitable one, but one is the one you know, I am going to be giving my life in a way that serves the community better, in a way that honors God more. And there's a risk in choosing the one that gets less profit. But that's part of what it means to believe. Or, or maybe you are growing in a relationship with one of your neighbors or friends who don't know Christ, and you are worried that if you actually open up about your faith, you will jeopardize that relationship. But believing in God's promises means risking, even there. Believing can mean risk. It can also mean sacrifice. If we jumped ahead a few chapters, we'll see that that story of how God calls Abraham to surrender Isaac completely, handing him over essentially to God's control to teach Abraham that the only hope that he has is in God's promises and not anything else. And there might come a time, and maybe even it is right now, where you find yourself faced with a choice where either you trust in God's promises and sacrifice something, or you hold on to what you want and don't trust. Now maybe, maybe you find yourself in an unhealthy dating relationship and you know that if you really take God at his word, you need to let that go. Faith means sacrifice. Or, or maybe there's this thing that you've really been wanting to buy, but you also know that there's this really important need that you could give that same money towards, and that would be what's honoring Christ more. Faith involves sacrifice. It involves risking, it involves sacrifice, but, and here's the part that we see most clearly, it also involves waiting. That's the most agonizing part, isn't it? If I, if I had to make a sacrifice, but I know tomorrow everything will be okay, I'm good with that. But the day in, day out difficulty of knowing that God's goodness is before us, hearing your reward is very great, but not seeing it, that's hard. And God comes to us and he says the same things that he says to Abraham. Here are my promises. Hold on to them. Hold on. I wonder if this morning some of you are finding it hard to hold on. That you are feeling like you're at a breaking point and it feels like this just isn't enough to keep you going. I, I invite you to remember something. To remember that everything God said to Abraham was utterly ridiculous to human ears, but everything actually happened. He did have a son, even though he was a hundred. <clears throat> and that son had a son, and that son had many sons, and their descendants did become as numerous as the sands on the seashore, and we even today are included amongst those descendants. God did exactly what he said he would do. And when God's people were in Egypt, that many multitude, God brought them through the Red Sea. He brought plagues. He fed them with manna. He did everything that, that could be greater than possibly imagined. And he brought them to the land that he said. God did exactly what he said he would. And he became their God and they were his people. And even right now this morning, God comes to us and he makes promises. 
And not only does he make promises, he makes promises and he ratifies them with a sign. We don't have the animals that are cut in half, but we do have the table, which is the sign of the covenant for us. And as we come to the table, God says, here are my promises. Because of what Jesus has done, you, if you believe in him, you are my children and I am your father and I will love you and your reward will be very great. He says as we come to the table, because of Jesus, I am going to make you new and make you whole and connect you to my people and you will once again experience that harmony. And he says to us as we come to the table, he says, I will bring you home and I will give you the eternal life that you long for. Friend, you have God's word. And he, he signs it with this seal of this sign right before us. And he calls you to believe. I like to take just a moment for us to kind of think. And whenever we are turning towards God in faith, that means we're also turning away from something else. There might be things that even this week, as you consider your life, you can realize ways that you've either been anxious or angry or choices that you've made that have shown that you aren't taking God at his word, but you're putting your trust in something else. I'd like to invite you this morning to use this as a time to walk into faith again, to confess before God how you have doubted his promises and to once again rest in the reality that God has promised you these things. Let's silently confess, and then I'll lead us in prayer to conclude. Father, in response to this passage, I know I think of the man that encountered Jesus and said, Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. And Father, that is the prayer of many of us as well. You have brought us to faith. You have brought us to believe in your promises, and yet we also realize how lacking we are in faith. And so we come to you confessing. For Lord, we, we do not trust you in the way that you deserve. You are so trustworthy. You have shown yourself in our lives again and again so faithful. And yet, again and again, we find ourselves doubting, ourselves anxious, ourselves making choices that do not reflect a faith in you. And so, Father, we ask for your forgiveness and we pray with this man, Lord, we believe, help us in our unbelief. Help us to trust more deeply in Jesus. We pray even now as we come to the table that as we see this sign of your promise showing us that it is real, that you would strengthen our faith. 
We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Friend, hear the good news of the gospel from Galatians. Paul reminds us that the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to us, the Gentiles. Hear the good news, friends. The blessing of Abraham has come to you through Jesus Christ. By faith in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.